Hey, everybody. This is the Variety and iHeart podcast, The Big Ticket. I'm Mark Malkin. Today's guest is Cynthia Nixon. She's talking about her latest role playing Sarah Paulson's love interest on Ratchet, Ryan Murphy's new Netflix series about Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Plus, she weighs in on J.K. Rowling's controversial comments about transgender people, what she thinks of Andrew Cuomo's handling of the pandemic, remember Nixon once ran against him for governor of New York, and why she says you shouldn't hold your breath waiting for another Sex in the City movie. I have Cynthia Nixon coming up after the break. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering supplies and solutions for every industry. With 24-7 support and experienced staff at over 250 local branches. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. I'm talking to Cynthia Nixon. Since Sex and the City went off the air in 2004, Cynthia Nixon has not only won two Tonys, but she ran for governor of New York. She's an outspoken political activist who lives in New York City with her wife, and she can now be seen on Ryan Murphy's new Netflix series, Ratchet. She will also soon begin shooting The Gilded Age, Down Abbey creator Julian Fellow's new series about the very wealthy in New York City in the 1800s during the Industrial Revolution. Hi, Cynthia Nixon. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. How are you surviving? I love your rooster on the wall. We got the rooster. We got my late dog. We got my husband and I in P-Town. We got my husband and I wedding. My uncles. (laughs) Wedding's on the table. Got it. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Is the wedding in P-Town too? No, wedding was Beverly Hills Courthouse. Oh, nice. It was very L.A. It's the nice. only place you go to get married at a courthouse. And there's <laughs> photos of the celebrities who got married there. That's <laughs> great. I, that would be fun. And I think Elizabeth Taylor's photo is there a few times. <laughs> really? <laughs> That's hilarious. So how are you? How are you doing this last six months or so? You know... I'm okay. I've been better, but uh, compared to what so many people are going through, I'm just perfectly fine. Are you in the city or did you escape the city? Um, No, I was in the city yesterday, but I came out here last night. We're in Montauk, my wife and I, for a few days while various kids are with various dads. So (laughs) that works out. How has the city been? What has it been like just walking around the city? You know, it was really pretty empty in the summer. It's starting to kind of um, be be more repopulated now. It sort of became transformed when the restaurants started, you know, opening. That seemed very different because I think people were so much, other than grocery store runs and drugstore runs, people were kind of hiding inside. Now there's a lot more kind of people on the streets. Mm. Um, and certainly, you know... The protests have been have been really strong. And in the beginning, there was so much, you know, kind of aggressive police response and tear gas and all kinds of stuff. Um, that was really terrifying. And a lot of that was a lot of that seemed to be happening kind of right in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and and then, of course, a lot of things have were were boarded up because there was some smashing of windows and stuff. But um 
you know, it's, I, I can't imagine I've ever, you know, gone even a month or two without being on the subway. And I haven't been on the subway, you know, since the middle of March. It's very mm. strange. How do you think New York's going to bounce back and how long do you think it'll take? Or do we not even know at this point? Because we don't know what's what's happening. You know, tomorrow. we don't know. We don't know what's what's coming. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I think this, the thing that would really help us bounce back um, would be taxing the wealthiest people who can afford it and reinvesting that in in our schools and in our health care and in making sure that the massive homelessness crisis that we have already had for a long time doesn't get exacerbated by people not being able to pay their rent. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, we're a very resilient city. We've been through a lot, obviously. Um, I know people are leaving. I am certainly not, nor will I. I can't imagine a circumstance that, you know, short of a nuclear bomb being dropped that would make me ever leave. So how do you think Governor Cuomo and Mayor de Blasio are doing? Well, again, I think uh, in terms of the governor, I think that his daily uh, broadcasts during the height of the epidemic were really important. But again, I think the way that he has, has gutted our, our budgets and particularly our health care and our education rather than, you know, he, he's got more than a dozen revenue raising proposals that have been brought to him and that are, um, you know, the things that we've done in our, in, our, in our city and in our state when we've had these kinds of problems before and they've worked well and they've made New York uh, get back on track. And it's obviously what we need to do now. Um, you know, we have 118 billionaires in New York State. Uh, 18 billionaires. And that's six more than we had last year. They've made $77 billion right now, just during the pandemic. 43 billionaires contribute to Governor Cuomo's uh, campaign. So he doesn't want to bother them. But I think now is the time to ask everybody to uh, pitch in a little bit. Wow. So let's talk about Ratchet. <laughs> Aren't we saying there's one feeling that's right and another feeling that's wrong? So much fun. It's evil. It's crazy. How did it come to you? Did you think Mildred Ratched had a backstory? So it came to me. I, I, um, I was told about the show. Sarah Paulson and I are good friends. And I was told about the show and I was told that there are a number of really juicy female parts other than her part that I might be right for. Um, and then I got a call from Ryan Murphy a little before Christmas 2018 describing it to me. And um, I read the scripts and I said, you know, and I heard who was in it. And I said, absolutely. Even though in my 40 plus year long career, I have never considered doing a television series that shoots in Los Angeles before because I am a New Yorker, <laughs> but you know, this seemed too good a chance to, you know, to miss this particular one and also to enter the Ryan Murphy universe. Very exciting to play a queer character falls in love with another queer character also played by a queer actress. I mean, this does not happen every day. 
to get to act with people like Judy Davis and Sophie Okonedo and Amanda Plummer and Sharon Stone. I mean, this is, uh, you know, an embarrassment of riches. Um, so yeah, I said, I said, yes. Also, you know, it's just a brave new world out there in terms of it's not 26 episodes. It's not 10 months of your life. It's, it's eight episodes and they tried really hard to, you know, send me back home uh, as often as I, you know, there were, there was one week in which I flew back and forth between New York and Los Angeles three times, if you can believe it. Yeah. Oy. Yeah. Oy. Crazy. That's tough. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. So tell us about Gwendolyn Briggs. Who is she? What's her motivation? And what do you like about her? So um, Gwendolyn, uh, so the, the, the show opens in 1947, just after World War II has ended. Uh, Gwendolyn Briggs works for the governor of California. She's his press secretary. He's kind of a hack. He's played by Vincent D'Onofrio. And he's in the midst of a challenging reelection campaign. And she is trying to find a way to make him seem current and cutting edge and progressive and big-hearted, which he is none of those things. <laughs> um, and she hits upon the idea of this mental hospital in on the California coast that seems to be all of those things. Um, and particularly with so many people coming home with PTSD um, and so much of the workforce kind of on the sidelines and uh, wanting to wanting to help people and get them back, get them back employed. Um, it seems a good match. Also, her, for, at her first visit to the to the mental hospital, she sets eyes on Mildred Ratched, who she is kind of falls for almost immediately. Um, so there is a kind of a confluence of her professional agenda and her personal agenda, which as the series goes on, we will see that this does not work out particularly well. So Ryan Murphy the other day tweeted um, showing some of the first looks from the show and some of the clips. And he said that the Mildred and Gwendolyn romance, get ready for the romance you deserve. Oh, why do we deserve this romance? Well, you know, one of the great things that Ryan Murphy does is he, I mean, he's such an, he's such an amazingly creative person, but he's also has like an encyclopedic seemingly knowledge of, of at least culture, you know, mm. fine art and certainly movies from the, the 30s, 40s, 50s, beyond. And so the, uh, the way Ratched is, is shot is so very evocative of the period. Um, but also the, the other thing that Ryan Murphy is, is so known for is he goes back to these periods and speaks in the language of film at that time, but puts women and people of color and queer characters, you know, into the narrative um, as, as powerful agents. Um, and, you know, there are so few, if you, if you think back on, on the movies in the, in the middle part of the 20th century, there are so few gay characters of any kind. And when we exist, we exist as, you know, kind of terrifying perverts and pedophiles and, and cold, villainous, uh, malevolent women. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, you're very hard-pressed, you know, prior to the, I, I don't even know what decade, <laughs> to, you know, think about a, a female couple that you've seen 
um, you know, you might have uh, one character that was like denoted as a lesbian, but to actually get to see a couple and, and to get to see a couple played by two, two women who are themselves gay is, a, you know, is a big deal. I know I'm thinking about it. The only thing I'm thinking about in my head is Kate and Allie. Do you remember that show? <laughs> Kate and Allie are not gay. Right, that's the thing, but everyone kind of I thought mean, they were. There's the are... killing of Sister George. Yes. If you've ever seen that, I am a fan yeah. of that film, but you certainly could not say any of those those women are role models. No. I mean, there was a movie, a TV movie that I saw that was, I guess, in the 70s, maybe early. No, I think it was the 70s with Jenna Rollins and Jane Alexander as two women who fall in love. But, you know, it, it's pretty, pretty uh, few and far between, really. Could you ever imagine the day that two queer women are playing two queer women falling in love on television? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing, but also we're, we're very blessed that we're not just... Um, stick figures, do you know, that mm -hmm. yes, these women are queer, but they also have a, a lot else going on. And they're not just sort of agit prop propaganda, aren't gay women great kind of thing. They're <laughs> deeply complicated, both of them in each in their own way. And they're trying to find each other is, you know, the course of true love never did run smooth, is beset by <laughs> obstacle after obstacle, some external, many internal. <laughs> I mean, just Mildred uh, Ratched, you like, am I supposed to be rooting for her? <laughs> there are times I am, and then I'm like, wait a minute. It's really sort of this, it really does play with your head. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, the character in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is so fascinating and one of the great film villainesses of all time. Um, and the film stands up, I think, beautifully, but also it doesn't take a lot of squinting to see that it is a deeply misogynistic film. And so for Ryan Murphy to say, hey, let's take that character, let's figure out, is she really the monster that we think of her being? And if she is that monster, how did she how did she become the, the monster what what happened to her let's take a look but I, I think there's another thing going on not just with with the ratchet character but so many strong female characters in the series um has to do with the moment in which it's set because when ryan you know pitched me the show told me about the show he said i want to uh, pinpoint this moment in american history when women had been such a an integral part of the war effort um, and had been given responsibilities and opportunities that they had never dreamed of having before and had come through with, you know, shining colors. And then as soon as the war ended and the, and the, the boys came home, it was kind of like, thanks so much, you can go and sit down and everything is going to be exactly the way it was before. And it was a very, this happened to women, it also definitely happened to people of color. Um, and this was a very rude awakening. So one of the, I think the themes is women who have now tasted not just the opportunity, but have, have, have received verification that, yeah, these, these jobs that I was doing, I'm up to them. I, 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 can, I can do it. Give me a chance. Um, that there is this thwarted ambition and what, what is happening to women at that time who have ambitions for themselves and who sort of 
glimpsed a future that was then snatched away. And I think if you, if you think about the Ratchet character, certainly she, she reminds me of people, you know, like Tony Soprano and Walter White. And we have many male examples in recent history of a person who, a character who might've been seen as a villain in another, in another time, in a less nuanced time. Uh, but we we embrace them, even though they kill people and they make, you know, terrible, terrible decisions. But somehow that's the beauty of art is it allows us to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody who, if we just read about them in a newspaper, we would say, oh, that's a, that's a horrible person. So let's talk about the next thing you're on to, the Gilded Age. Yes. Julian Fellows, the creative Down Abbey. Is this going to be our new Down Abbey? And tell us about the Gilded Age. So the Gilded Age is Julian Fellows' new show on HBO. We were about to, we were four days away from our, our first day of production when we got shut down in March. Um, and we're starting shooting on the 29th of September, very soon. Oh, wow. Very soon. Yeah, yeah very soon. I had a fitting uh, last Friday. And so it's about, it takes place in 1880s in, in New York, in New York. Um, and it's really about um, the struggle between the old, old money and the new money coming in. It's a moment very like the, the present one in which um, there's an industry that's exploding. Now you could call that industry tech or whatever you would call it. Mm -hmm. And then um, it was it was steel. It was the Industrial Revolution and the railroads. And all of a sudden, there were these staggeringly wealthy people who seemed to come out of absolutely nowhere. And they moved into New York and they built themselves mansions. And they um, they the the old money people were horrified. And they it was a you know a war between the two between mm -hmm. the two. Um, and so Christine Baranski and I play sisters. She's widowed. I'm a spinster. Uh, and our, our niece is newly orphaned, is played by Louisa Jacobson. And she comes to live with us um, and uh, kind of under duress. And she says about us after meeting us that of her aunts, one of them is uh, clever, but not very kind. And one of them is kind, but not very clever. Oh. So <laughs> I am not very clever one, uh, which I am very much looking forward to. So is it all filming on location in New York? Can you even film on location in New York? Where is it all going to be? Shot? I mean, it's filming. Um, it's filming in Brooklyn and in Queens and in oh. Troy, New York and in Newport, Rhode Island. Um, we're, uh, you know, They've had to make many, many changes, certainly, um, not just in terms of, of how we're filming, but in terms of day players and, and uh, background, uh, that kind of thing. I think there were things that were going to happen outside that are more happening um, inside now. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, they've you know, they've had to really construct this world because in, in Troy and in Newport, I think there are some houses that they're using parts mm -hmm. of, but it's certainly in terms of anything that happens outside with, with carriages and, uh, and the like, you know, obviously they, it's a massive production and they've taken over blocks and just recreated a tiny little piece of, of old New York. So I imagine in a show like this, there is going to be those grand parties 
with the yes. plumes and the and the the dresses. But do they have to scale that back? Do you CGI it now? How does that? All I think there's play? I think there's a lot of things that are being CGI that previously would have been would have been background. Yeah, background actors. And how did you know when you were comfortable going back to set? Because each person is different in terms of what their level of being comfortable is. How did you know? I mean, I, I think, you know, knock on wood, I think they've done an amazing job from what I've seen so far. And they've been very much in contact with us through the past months. And we've had these, you know, Zoom call after Zoom call, hearing all the precautions and all the people, the medical people that have been hired. Um, as I said, I went in for a fitting uh, on Friday and I was kind of, I was impressed by the level of precaution that was taken even just to allow me to enter the production offices and have a fitting. Temperature checks and all of that, huh? Well, temperature checks, COVID tests, you know, very specific masks, everyone wearing masks, everyone interfacing with me in the wardrobe department wearing face shields. I mean, just just a lot. And, and I think- Surreal. All the, all the buildings have completely been rejiggered. I mean, when I was picked up by the teamster who picked me up, you know, each, he and I had filled out a, a questionnaire, which we will do every day. The actors who have to, of course, take off their masks at times during filming are being tested every day. I showed him my iPad with my green screen saying I had passed my questionnaire. He showed me his phone with his green screen. He was behind a, an awful lot of you know, basically plexiglass at the very front of the vehicle. I was in the back of the vehicle. You know, all the vehicles have air circulation and also windows that all open. And I mean, a lot, a lot of precautions. Is it going to be a lot longer shoot than originally planned? I imagine. It, it, it is. It adds an enormous amount of time. Also, if you just, you know, we have a lot of women in our cast. And of course, the between the corsets and, and, and the wigs and the hats and, you know, everything, all, all, it takes us a while, each of us to get dressed and they have greatly scaled down the wardrobe personnel. So I think, mm -hmm. you know, like on a day when there are six of us shooting and let's say four or five of us are women, we're only having two wardrobe people doing that. I mean, that's going to be an enormous amount of, of people waiting around. It is a new day. It is a new day. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, everyone keeps saying to me, Mark, when do you think Hollywood would get back? The red carpet, when will the red carpet? And I'm like, I don't think the red carpet is coming back until there's a vaccine. I yeah. just can't, yeah. can't see it. it. There's too many variables. You can't yeah. control it. Like how you're saying with Gilded Age, there's a, there's a control factor. A red yeah. carpet? No yeah. way. Yeah. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, Nixon talks about the possibility of another Sex in the City movie. We'll be right back. Okay, let's go. So we're supposed to be sticking to the script. But we ain't. Because <laughs> that's just not what we do. It's your girl, Tim Bam, y'all. And it's AJ Hey, And we're giving a whole bunch of good, bad advice. And a lot of bad, great <laughs> advice. <laughs> we're trying to teach you how to say when, how, and how much, y'all. Yes, uh -huh. Now, that doesn't always have to apply to your sex life, ladies. It can absolutely apply to your career. Unless your sex life is your career, then it's interchangeable. <laughs> We're talking about a whole lot of sex. I love the sex. Hey, and a bunch of money. We love the money and relationships. Yeah, We're going to work on that. 
So listen to our new show, We Talk Back, every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Big Ticket. Here's more of Cynthia Nixon. I want to talk to you about J.K. Rowling, your son who's transgender. You talked about how your son is quite upset. Well, upset would be perhaps a strong word, but I think he was, I think he was startled and I think he was really deeply disappointed as I was too. Mm. If you could sit down with JK, what would you say to her? I mean, again, I've, I've tried to understand the point of view that she's coming from. I don't understand it. I think she is feeling that trans women are I, I, I don't even want to try and characterize what she thinks because I don't understand it. But it just seems to me that particularly who she is, how, how deeply we, we love her books and love the films that come from her books and how much it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a, such an eloquent defense of people who are different, right? And it's seen as a, you know, as a, a metaphor for so many different things, for diversity and for um, for queerness and for you know, I mean the, the the Death Eaters seem like you know at times they seem like Nazis and at times they seem like white supremacists and you know it, so it's and and I think everybody was so delighted or in everybody in my world let me put it that way was so delighted. At when she let slip that she always thought that Dumbledore was gay. We were like, oh, how terrific. <laughs> um, so to have her kind of exclude and uh, deny this, this segment of our population, some of whom are her most ardent fans, was really, um, really upsetting. And, and I, um, I do have to say, though, that and I, I was quoted about this recently, but they didn't quote the thing that I wanted to say equally much, which was that I was so impressed and touched and um, given hope by Daniel Radcliffe's response and how he just came in and, and just said everything you would, you would want someone to say and, mm-hmm. and about how working as he does closely with the Trevor Project, you know, that we should be listening to those people about about who trans people are and what they need and what is destructive to them. And certainly this kind of denying trans people's existence is a very, um, very destructive and, and to me, seemingly unnecessary thing. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. I don't understand why she weighed in on it at all. And you just insert any other group in there, you know, any ethnic group, uh, disabled people, I mean, any other group that you want to put in there that is marginalized and discriminated against, and immediately it's so clear, if it wasn't before, how apparent this is. Are you able to, in the future, separate the artist and the art? Yeah, I don't really have a, I don't really have a problem with that, you know, mm. and I, um, and I, I believe in her books, and I believe in the films, and and I believe in the message of them. I'm, I'm puzzled that her umbrella, which seemed previously so broad, you know, leaves this one group standing out in the rain, but um, they're not standing out in the rain in my J.K. Rowling world in my head. 
And when are you going to run for office again? What, which which <laughs> spot do you want? Come on. No, no time soon. No time soon. I mean, um, it was really that I wanted to run against Andrew Cuomo at that moment um, and and fight for and talk about the New York that we could have as we are such a wealthy and such a progressive state. And we are so far behind on so many issues. And even though I was not elected, I was really part of a blue wave that swept through New York and had so many progressive people elected and, and took back the New York State Senate for the, for the Democrats. Um, and we passed so many things, uh, you know, whether you're talking about the, the Green New Deal or driver's licenses for all or ending cash bail. I mean, the, the list is as long as my arm of things that we've done so far. There's a, a long way to go, but we're also just a couple of votes shy of a, a, a veto-proof majority in the New York State mm -hmm. Senate. And um, we had, uh, I think, six, uh, sorry, five, we had five uh, Democratic Socialists elected to the legislature in New York this uh, this past year, uh, which was, we only had one before, now we have six. I mean, I think that New York is waking up to the progressive possibilities here. Who's going to have the White House in January? Well, I really hope Joe Biden is going to have the White House in, in January. I mean, I think you know, I don't ever want to make the mistake that I made before of just assuming that someone, Donald Trump or someone like him, could not get elected. I'm, I'm worried about uh, tam tampering with the, the voting process. I think, I mean, there, there are so many, you don't even know how to start talking about Trump because it just never ends. But like the post office, like let's destroy the post office. I mean, it's, it, 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 it's like some, terrible Aldous Huxley novel. Um, so yes, I think that Joe Biden will be elected president. And I think anybody who was undecided or hanging around on the sidelines before or Hillary turned them off for whatever reason, I, I, I really hope that we've all gotten over that. <laughs> um, and we understand, you know, just, just for COVID alone, we cannot survive as a country if we have a president who says things like, mm, maybe masks are actually not helpful. Mm. And of course, I wouldn't be doing my job without asking you, will we ever see another Sex in the City movie? I do not think so. <laughs> Would you want to? I mean, I love Sex in the City. And if you know, the powers that be all got together. And if it was a go, of course, I'd be like, oh, how terrific. All home week, you know. But I just, I, I mean, I just don't see it happening. I think people tried very hard and it was a, not a go. And so, no. It's kind of amazing during quarantine, everyone's binging everything. <laughs> and there's definitely a Sex in the City research. It never went away. Everyone would binge it. We didn't call it binging. Right. But even more now, people are seeing it and there's, you know, young people, it's like, is this a new show? Like for them, it could even right. be thinking it's a new show. Well, I think also Sex and the City is so much about, you know, being out in the world and, and sampling, you know, I always think of uh, when I think about Gwendolyn, the character I play in Ratchet, I think about that Auntie Mame quote, 
you know, life is a smorgasbord and most poor sons of bitches are starving to death, you know? And I think yeah. that's what Sex in the City is. It's a smorgasbord of New York and clothes and food and love and sex. And, you know, it's just about taking a big bite out of life. And it's something that it's very hard to do right now. Take a, take a big bite out of, out of life and go out into the world and have adventures. Thank you so much, Cynthia. It's so oh, good seeing you. We are done. Okay. You are fantastic. Um, <laughs> thank you for everything. Um, and like I said, Ratchet is just fun and nuts. And the yeah. I actually have a story coming out this week in the magazine on the production design. Is just. I know it's design. astonishing, right? It's. I, I looked at literally as soon as the credits open, I'm like, we have to do something on the production design. Right, right. It's, and you just, go ahead. You know, I, I watched it, uh, my wife and I watched it with our 17-year-old. Mm -hmm. And he's sort, of, he sort of a film buff and a film student, you know, not an official film student, just right. a, a <laughs> fireside, you know, film student, mm -hmm. and armchair. Um, and he said, he, he loved that it's a film noir, but it's in Technicolor. And that actually it made it creepier than if it was in black and white and very shadowy. And I feel like in some way, it's like Ryan Murphy saying, you know, make America great again. This, this time that our president keeps referring to, it looked really great and really optimistic and prosperous, but actually mm -hmm. there was an enormous amount of malevolence and violence and prejudice just right under the surface, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, you look at the color schemes, you know, the, the lobby yeah. of the hospital is pinks and pretty I colors. Know. And to think what's going on in the basement. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much. Stay safe, be well, enjoy mom talk. And okay. hopefully thank next you. time I see you, it's in person. I would love that. That was Cynthia Nixon. Ratchet premieres on Netflix on September 18th. Coming up next week, Millie Bobby Brown. The Stranger Things star talks about her new movie, Enola Holmes, and how she feels about the Kardashians' announcement that they're ending their reality show. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark Malkin. And for all your up-to-the-minute Hollywood news, head over to Variety.com. Stay safe, be well, and please keep wearing those masks. See you next week.